I said last night that uh, Jonah is a very simple book. Uh, kids can read it and get the big picture uh, pretty readily. But it's also a, a very complex book, and uh, it confronts us with some really tricky theological questions. And that's what we're going to look at in chapter 3. Uh, in chapter 3, our third lesson is divine responsiveness to human action. Or we could put it this way. If God is sovereign, and if God has predestined everything from the beginning of time, does what you do make any difference? You see this plaque, prayer changes things. Really? If God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass, from before the foundation of the world, does prayer change anything? Jonah confronts us with this this kind of issue. Uh, Let me give you some either-ors. Either God is good, or God is in control. You have neighbors, they know you're a Christian, They know that you have said, God is good. They know that you have said, I'm not worried, God is in control. And so they think about those two things and they say, okay, I'll give you one or the other, but not both. Either God is good or God is in control. You can have one or the other, but not both because I watch the news. And based on what I see in the news... If there is a good God out there, he must not be in control, because why is everything so horrific? There's a good God who's in control. So last year there was a hurricane, and the hurricane not only veered and went over one of the islands in the Bahamas, but then it stopped And it just sat there for about five days wreaking havoc on that island. If there's a good God, he's not in control. A good God would have never let that happen. The the storm would have just stayed out at sea. If there's a God who's in control of that storm, how can you tell me he's good when that storm did so much destruction? Now, I think if we're honest... This is not just a question that our neighbors raise. We have this same kind of question. We wrestle with the tension between the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God. Well, in a similar way, either God has determined everything from before the foundation of the world, or God responds to us. And what we do in time and space actually makes a difference in God's actions. Ooh, those are two other ones that we have trouble putting together. It's easy to be like a fatalist and to say God has determined everything from before the foundation of the world, so really, what I do doesn't matter. Because it's all written in stone before God made anything. Uh, or it's easy to say, no, God didn't 
determine everything from before the foundation of the world. He's waiting to see what I do, and then he'll act in response to my praying. And if I pray, he'll do it. And if I don't pray, he won't do it. I mean, both of these things we can easily defend from the Bible. Ephesians 2. God is at work in all things according to the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1. We have been predestined from before the foundation of the world by the God who loves us. God determined everything from before the foundation of the world. The Bible teaches that clearly, I think. You do not have, says James, he doesn't say you do not have because God didn't determine before the foundation of the world you wouldn't get it. He says you do not have because you do not ask for it. The Gospels tell us, Jesus could not do many miracles in that place because the people lacked faith. He wanted to do more, but he couldn't because people didn't believe. So it's easy to see that the Bible teaches that God determined everything from the beginning it's easy to, to show that the Bible teaches that what you do makes a difference. It's harder to figure out what? How those two things go together. This may end up being like the question, how is it that Jonah was sleeping during that big, big storm? Well, we know he was. What's the Bible say about how? Dramamine? Maybe the Bible doesn't answer all the questions that one plus one plus one equals one. How can God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be one God? Three persons. I mean, we believe that, right? But it's not always easy. I mean, we can draw analogies, you know, like an egg, and there's a yolk, and there's the white, and there's the shell, and they're all different, but it's an egg. Yeah, but God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one in substance, says the confession. One in substance. So there's not like a yolk, and it's like three yolks. Well, if there are three yolks, it looks like there's just one yolk. All I'm saying is, I know a lot less than I used to when I was young. <laughs> I'm much more comfortable with those three hard words. I don't know. But we, we want to know as much as we possibly can based on what the Bible teaches us. But we want to be content in affirming what the Bible teaches us and not try to go beyond and answer questions that the Bible doesn't answer and insist on getting an answer because we want it. Because then we end up kind of making the Bible, twisting the Bible to give us answers to questions that it doesn't intend to answer. 
Now, before we jump into our text, which is really just one verse, chapter 3 and verse 10, although we're going to read the whole chapter, let's listen to what the Westminster Standards say. Uh, I don't know, we, we might have, I don't know you, uh, I, some of you I remember from last year, we might have some guests here who don't come from a, a Presbyterian tradition, so let me just say a, a, a note about these Westminster Standards. Uh, Presbyterian churches are confessional churches. That is kind of like the Apostles' Creed. All Christian churches agree. Roman Catholic, Russian Orthodox, Baptist, Lutherans, Episcopalians, non-denominationals, AME, Church of God, uh, Presbyterians, we have all kinds of differences in all kinds of things, but there's one thing that we all agree on. We can all come into this room, stand and say together, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the uh, life everlasting, the Apostles' Creed. All Christians believe the Apostles' Creed. It's what holds us together. That's why it's an important thing to use, at least from time to time in our worship to remind us we, we so much see the differences that we need a continual reminder of what we as Christians hold together. Uh, Muslims can't say the Apostles' Creed. Jehovah's Witnesses can't say the Apostles' Creed. Buddhists can't say the Apostles' Creed. Orthodox Christians, most broadly speaking, all confess this is what we believe. Now, as Reformed and Presbyterian types, we have added to that. Uh, there are things that we, as kind of a subset of Apostles' Creed Christians, we agree on certain things. Now, to be a member of this church, you don't need to agree with everything that are in what we call the Westminster Standards, that is, the, uh, the Confession of Faith and the Larger and the Shorter Catechism. Baptists have confessions of faith, Lutherans have confessions of faith, and these are kind of the things that set us apart as distinct Christian communities. And you don't need to believe all of that's in the Westminster Standards to be a member here. You do to be an elder. You do to be a pastor. You do. You need to to uh, agree to that. What we could say the party line. So that's what I mean when I'm talking here about the Westminster Standards, the Confession of Faith, the Larger and the Shorter Catechism. If you're not part of this tradition, it's just what we as a as Presbyterians have agreed upon uh, as our interpretation of the Bible. Now, in that regard. Um, from the Westminster Confession of Faith, the third chapter, it's speaking of God's eternal decree. And it says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. 
Yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of secondary causes, like praying, taken away, but rather established. Uh, Richard Pratt, apparently unrelated to Prattsville, that I don't know. Uh, in one of he, he was he used to be a colleague of mine at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. He started at Reformed Theological Seminary um, Jackson. He left and is heading up his own ministry, which is called Third Millennial Third Millennium Ministry. Wonderful organization. Thirdmill.org. You can find them. His goal is to provide seminary education for free to anybody anywhere in the world as long as they can connect to the Internet. Uh, their work is a lot of their, uh, they do courses, they do books. Uh, most of it, obviously, is in English, but they now have a lot in Spanish. They have a lot in Chinese. They have a lot in Russian. He, the, the ministry just exists to get people good, solid theological uh, education. Um, he said, the Reformed tradition, that's like this church and churches that are like it. <coughs> the Reformed tradition has emphasized the transcendence of God. Transcendence. That's, here, here's what transcendence is. Transcendence is when God says through the prophet Isaiah, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts, as high as the heaven is above the earth, that's how much higher my thoughts are than your thoughts. God transcends. He goes beyond. We can truly know God, but we cannot know God as God knows himself. We can truly know God, but we cannot know God exhaustively. Because God is infinite and we're finite, so why would we expect as finite creatures we could ever have infinite knowledge. Only God has infinite knowledge. I remember growing up as a kid in the church. Can't wait to get to heaven. Because when I get to heaven, I'll know everything. Wrong. You won't know everything. Because that would mean when you got to heaven, you became God. And contrary to some religious traditions... We don't believe that human beings are going to become God when they go to heaven. You're still going to be limited. You're still going to be finite. You will know everything you need to know. You will know a lot more than you currently know, but you won't be God. Only God is omniscient. Only God knows everything. That's transcendence. He's beyond what we can think uh, or even imagine. Uh, so the, the Reformed tradition has emphasized the transcendence of God, including his eternal decrees. That is, we believe that the Bible teaches that God ordained everything to, that would happen before the foundation of the world. Um, but Pratt says this theological accent has many benefits, but it also has a liability an overemphasis on divine transcendence has at times obscured the reality and the complexity of divine providence. What he's saying is that an overemphasis on God ordaining everything from before the foundation of the world 
can obscure God's immediate action and reaction in your lives in real time and in real space. In other words, what he's saying is that if our tradition has erred in any way, we have erred by overemphasizing that God's in control of everything, and God ordained everything from before the foundation of the earth to such an extent that we don't take as seriously our responsibilities. We don't believe as fervently as some other Christians do that prayer makes a difference. We might say it, but we don't really pray it. And so, yeah, tomorrow morning, Christians are going to worship, and some Christians are going to be imbalanced in affirming God's eternal decrees, ordaining everything from before the foundation of the world, almost to the exclusion of human responsibility. Other Christians are going to gather, and they're going to so emphasize that it if you don't get out there and evangelize, they'll never be saved. As if God doesn't have anything to do with it. They're both out of balance. I'm not going to say one's worse than the other. They're both ignoring some of what the Bible teaches. That's what Pratt is getting at. Then as we look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the eighth question, catechism, if you're not familiar with that, catechism is a beautiful thing. I grew up with Catholic friends. We have at least one former Catholic here. Any other former Catholics? Any, did you have catechetical instruction when you were young? Yeah. I See, catechism, Catholicism. I thought they went together. Because on Mondays, when we walked home from school, we got to the Catholic Church, and I kept going, and my Catholic friends turned and went to St. Philomena's because they had catechetical instruction. So I grew up thinking that's Catholics. Presbyterians do it. Lutherans do it. Some Baptists do it. Catechism is simply a question-and-answer way of teaching the basics of the Christian faith. We have a wonderful children's catechism. Uh, and I always tell parents, use the children's catechism with your kids. If you do, you will learn a lot of good theology. <laughs> First question, who made you? God did. That's pretty easy, right? Um, what else did God make? All things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. Um, how can you glorify God? By loving him and keeping his commandments. Why should you glorify God? Because he made me and he takes care of me. That's, that's all catechism is. It's just a question and answer way of learning the basics of the Christian faith. And our church has two of them. It has the shorter one and the longer one. The larger catechism is the main one. The shorter catechism was, well, if you can't quite keep up with the long one, use the short one. Fact of the matter is now nobody uses the long one. It's all we can do to use the short one. Okay, let's get rid of the short one and just do the children's catechism. That's okay with me. If you do the children's catechism... You're doing well. So, the eighth question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, how does God execute his decrees? 
That is, when God says this is going to happen, how's he make it happen? It says God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. God determined beforehand everything that was going to happen, and then he made it happen through creation. God creates all things in the space of six days, and through providence. Providence. Uh, Providence is God governing all of his creatures and all of their actions. Now, we have a little bit of slippage in our language. Presbyterians will often say, see, your non-Christian neighbor will say, wow, wasn't that lucky? Lucky is kind of not like a Presbyterian thing. If, if, if somebody says lucky, you look like, luck? I believe in God, not luck. Um, we don't say, wasn't that lucky? We say, wasn't that providential? Don't we? You've all probably said it, yes? That's really kind of a funky thing to say. <laughs> it is. Stop and think about it. If you say, wasn't that providential, what's that imply? Something else wasn't. Yeah, providence is God governing all of his creatures and all of their actions. And when we say, wasn't that providential, we only say it about what kind of thing? Some good thing. Yeah, wasn't that lucky? That's what we mean. But we say it in a real spiritual, reformed, and Presbyterian kind of way. Yeah, that car accident when a teenager was killed. You didn't say, wasn't that providential? Hurricane, wasn't that providential? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it was. So we, we, we use the word providence kind of in a non-theological way. We really mean it as a, like a Reformed and Presbyterian and Christian way of saying, wow, wasn't I lucky? That, wasn't that a good thing? That's what it means. But God's providence is his governing of all of his creatures and all of their actions. That's why the, the, the Puritans didn't say, wow, wasn't that providential? They say, wow, wasn't that a shining providence? Oh, I'm so sorry. Wasn't that a dark providence? Because they believe that everything was providential. Yeah. The, the good things, that's easier to sell to your neighbor, by the way, that God is in control of those good things. It's the bad things that make, yeah, that's the tough nut for your neighbors to swallow. And if you're honest, that's the tough nut for you to swallow as well. So, with regard to providence, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, that is, that he knew it beforehand, but he also determined that it would take place, God is the first cause. All things come to pass, there's our word again, immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes. 
either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Contingently. Freely or contingently. I'll give you an illustration. Somebody is sick, and the doctor says there's no hope. And the congregation prays. God heals that person. He did it freely. But often God does things contingently. Somebody is sick, and God heals that person by having them go to the doctor who gives them a pill or who does surgery or who adjusts the cranial things up there so that there's nothing going on anymore. Yeah, that's God using secondary causes. And most of the time, God works through secondary causes. Your car breaks down. I believe that you could lay hands on your car and pray over it, and God can make it run again. Who wouldn't believe that? God can do all things according to his own power and will. He's sovereign. But most of the time, how does God get your car fixed? You take it to the mechanic. And the mechanic is a good mechanic, and so he just listens, and he says, I know what's wrong. Boom. I'm amazed. Like, wow, that was a miracle. No, it wasn't a miracle. You got a good mechanic. That's the way God ordinarily works. I think, and I've, I've heard stories, somebody in a, in a desert, military, Gideon's Bible, read the Bible, converted. But most of the time, how does somebody get saved? Somebody shares the word with them. But does God really need us for that? Absolutely not. He can either do it freely, or he can do it contingently. And he's free to do it however he wants to do. Most of the time, he does it contingently. Pratt says, God did not simply make an eternal plan that fixed all events. He also sees that his plan is carried out by working through, without, and contrary to created means. Calvin, and if you're not from our tradition, uh, John Calvin is our patron saint. Um, I know Presbyterians don't have saints. We leave that to the Catholics to have saints and to uh, uh, the, the Greek and Russian and Serbian and Coptic Orthodox. Um, but we do have St. John. Uh, Calvin balanced his affirmation of the immutability of God's decrees. God determined it before the foundation of the world and it is going to happen. He balanced that with an acknowledgement of God's complex involvement in the progression of history. Wow, that's a long introduction. But I told you, we, we have to have kind of this theological framework when we come to Jonah chapter 3. Let's turn there, and I'm going to read it. And uh, I'm reading in the uh, NIV 2011. Um, for those of you who are using the NASB, 
you're probably using a revised NASB. It's called the NASB 95. In 1995, the NASB went through a revision. It's not the original NASB. And the original NIV was the 1984, and it went through a revision, and that's the 2011. Now, the ESV folks, they don't have this published anywhere, but the ESV that you're reading, if you have a relatively new ESV, it's not the original one. It went through a revision. They just didn't publish it, and they didn't rename it. It's still just the uh, the ESV. The ESV folks did a while back uh, put out a public announcement, and they said, we're done. No more revision of the ESV. You can be assured that your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren are going to be using the same text as you are using right now. And there was an outcry. And the outcry was basically, what on earth are you smoking? Are you presuming that the English language is not going to change? From awful going to awesome, and you're going to keep the word awful even though nobody uses it that way? And so the ESV translation committee said, oops, sorry, we made a mistake. Uh, We're going to do our best to maintain continuity, but sure, we're going to have to update it from time to time. That's just the nature. If If you use the New Living Translation... You're probably using the uh, NLT 2.0. It made, went through a major revision after the first release of it. And uh, uh, so that's just the nature of translation. If language didn't change, we wouldn't need to do any of this. We'd all still be speaking Hebrew. And uh, so we wouldn't have to bother with any. But language changes uh, in, God's, in God's shining providence. It's not a dark providence to me. Okay, so chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord uh, came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. This is when you have to laugh a little bit you got a picture in your mind's eye, a goat. All the goats of Nineveh, not eating or drinking. What would you have to do to all of those goats? You'd have to muzzle them all. Because by definition, that's what ruminants do, right? Cows, goats, sheep, they walk around with their nose on the ground and they nibble and drink all day long. Um, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. A, a small little point, but, but you, Hebrew has, Hebrew knows the difference between what we call the passive, be covered, and the reflexive, cover oneself. We do too. Um, we would say, did you clothe yourself this morning? Well, we probably wouldn't put it that way, but you'd understand it, right? Did you get dressed? 
There's a difference between someone dressing you, I was dressed by the nurse, and you dressing yourself, I dressed myself. This Hebrew is a reflexive. We should really translate it. Uh, where was I? But let people and animals clothe themselves with sackcloth. Picture that goat again, walking over to a pile of, of burlap, grabbing a piece and kind of throwing it over its shoulders. That's what the text says. Our translations miss it because I think like they're so caught up in the intensity of the story that they miss the humor that the author has woven in to the story with all of these animals fasting, food and water, and all of them clothing themselves with sackcloth. It's a bit of hyperbole to make us laugh uh, and also to make a point. This point is talking about how thoroughgoing the fasting was. Now, hyperbole. Got to be a little careful with that. Uh, if you say there's hyperbole in the Bible, and here's why. Give me a one-word definition of hyperbole. Exaggeration. And what did your mother tell you never to do? Because exaggerating is lying. So if we're thinking of our mother, don't exaggerate because exaggerating is lying. And the Bible, And the preacher says there's exaggeration in the Bible. What do you hear? Yeah, the Bible's lying. But exaggeration is an ordinary figure of speech, like a simile. Um, God is like a rock. A metaphor, the Lord is my shepherd. uh, Hyperbole is an ordinary figure of speech. And we use hyperbole all the time. It took forever to get home last night. We're exaggerating, but we're not exaggerating to deceive somebody. That's what mom didn't want. We're exaggerating to make our point with some rhetorical power. And that's what the Bible does at times. Here I think it's using exaggeration with the animals fasting and not drinking anything and clothing themselves with sackcloth. But it's using that to teach some truth. And the truth is, this was a pervasive and thorough uh, repentance that was taking place in Nineveh. Um, Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Now, in English, when we say who knows, it's a rhetorical question. It expects that you know the answer, and the answer is no one. Who knows? Nobody does. But in Hebrew, when you say who knows, you mean there's hope that somebody might step in. God may yet relent and with compassion Turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Okay. Wow. That's like the longest introduction I think I've ever given. 
Let's look at four things here. Well, four things under two headings. First of all, let's look at the text when it says, God saw. Now, this is a figurative seeing, not a literal seeing. This is a figurative speech, a figure of speech that we call anthropomorphic language. Anthropos, anthropology, that's the study of humanity, man. Anthropos, Greek word for man. Anthropomorphic. Uh, when something morphs, what does it do? Change. What changes? Starts with F. The form changes. Morph is form. Anthropos, man, form. Form of man. Anthropomorphic language is language that we use to speak of God as if he's human. One thing that the catechism makes crystal clear is that God is a spirit and has not a body like man. Uh, John tells us God is spirit. God doesn't have a body. If God doesn't have a body, what particular part of the body does God not have? He doesn't have eyes. And he does not have an optic nerve that runs to a brain that can interpret the light that is coming in, turn it into electric signals, have it be interpreted as a stained glass window that is going through my eyes. God doesn't have a body. God is spirit. And so God doesn't see, literally, he sees anthropomorphically, that is, as if he were a human. There are plenty of examples of this kind of language for God. Remember in Genesis 3, it said they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Well, what doesn't God have? Feet. So what doesn't God do? God doesn't walk. Uh, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. you shall, Deuteronomy 5.15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, you should keep the Sabbath. God doesn't have a hand, and God doesn't have an arm. There are a lot of anthropomorphic images for God, which is why question nine of the catechism is, what is God? And the answer, God is a spirit and has not a body like men. So, God saw means God saw anthropomorphically. God saw figuratively. Now, that might start to make you feel a little bit nervous. It shouldn't, because often when you hear somebody say, oh, that's figurative, it's not literal, what you hear them saying is, it's not true, and that's not true. To say that something is figurative does not mean it is not true. Jesus said, 
I am the vine, and you are the branches. And unless you stay connected to me, you can't bear fruit. Uh, this morning when you got up, did any of you like pick grapes off of your arms? No. Is Jesus a literal vine? Are you a literal branch? No. Is Jesus truly a vine that you have to stay connected to if you want to produce fruit as a Christian? Absolutely. So the fact that Jesus says, I am the gate, and he's not a literal gate, doesn't mean that the Bible's not saying something true. When Jesus says, I am the gate to the sheepfold, and you've got to come through me, he really does mean something true. Not that he's like a white picket fence, but that if you want entrance into the Father's presence, there's only one way you can gain that entrance, and it's by faith in Jesus. So, metaphorical language, figurative language, anthropomorphic language, it's not literal, but it speaks the truth of who God is and what God is like. In other words, God saw anthropomorphically, but God saw truly. The point being that when it says God saw, it's teaching us that God was not like just up in the choir loft, sitting down, unaware of what's going on, smoking a pipe, saying, you know, way back before the foundation of the world, I determined everything that would ever take place, and so I'm just kind of letting it happen. It's going to all happen. I'm not really involved. Doesn't matter if I'm looking at what's happening or just looking over here. I'm not really involved. This is really not Christian theism. This is what we call deism. Deism from Deo, uh, Latin, Italian, Spanish, uh, Deus, Deo, Via con Dios, go with God, deism. Deism believes that there is a God, but the God, like, is a watchmaker. He made the watch, he wound the watch up, and it's just running now all by itself, and he's not personally involved at all. We can live that way. We can think that way, even though we may never have heard the way the word deism before. But if you overemphasize this side of God's decrees and God determining everything, the counsel of God's will, you can begin to live as if there's no real action in time and space, God and his people. And when the text says God saw, it just is reminding you that God is there. Just like there's only one reason why you can see me right now. It's because you're here in this room. You're present. And it's saying that there's a real presence of God at this point in history. God's really involved. He's not just making his eternal and immutable, unchangeable will run automatically.
God is truly involved in the process of history. God saw what was going on. And then it gets even trickier, because in most of our translations, it says something like God relented. The last part of verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented. I think the reason why our translations use the word relent, and I'm joking here a little bit, but I think the reason why they use relent is because nobody knows what it means. (laughs) And so nobody's going to ask the difficult question. We just read past it thinking, yeah, we know what that just said, but do we? God relented. Well, let's just talk about the meaning of that word relent in English. First of all, it's not a common word. When's the last time you said relent when you were like in the grocery line having a conversation with somebody? It is just not an ordinary word. So it's uncommon, uh, not characteristic of the NIV translators to use a word like relent. It's not a common word at all. Uh, it's used in two different ways when it is used. It's used in the sense of to become less severe. For example, the judge relented, and he only gave the guy 15 years for his crime when he could have given him 30 he issued a decision that was less severe than it could have been. That's relenting. Uh, that's kind of when you say, you're grounded for three months. And of course, you relent of that because you realize that was a pretty idiotic thing to say. And you just said that in the heat of the moment. And so you say, okay, half an hour. You're, you're getting less severe. That's one way in which we use it. We also use the word relent in terms of abandoning a course of action. The father relented and let the kids buy ice cream. Where I live in Orlando, let's imagine that the the dad, uh, as my son would do, the dad took his daughter to Disney for the day. And, uh, I mean, they've had soda, and they've had cotton candy, and they've had all sorts of things. And as they're on their way out, they're walking past that little ice cream cart, and uh, my granddaughter says to her dad, Daddy, ice cream. And he says, no, no more sugar. So then they get to the exit of the park, and there's uh, another Ice cream. Daddy, ice cream. No, I told you. No more sugar. Then they get to the end of the trolley ride to go to the car, and there's another ice cream. Daddy, please, ice cream. Okay, you can have one, but only a small one. Not that any of you have ever done that kind of thing with your children. My son didn't learn that from me. He must have picked it up from somebody else. But that's relenting. That means that you you were set in a course of action, no ice cream, but eventually the kids wear you down, 
and you abandon the course that you were on and you give them the ice cream. We use relenting in both of those ways. Now, what's the meaning of the Hebrew word that is translated relent? Well, in general, it's that second meaning. To relent is to abandon a particular course of action. That's what God did here. Let's look at it in context. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Go to the city and preach the message I'm going to give you. So Jonah goes and preaches the message, and what's the message? Forty days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. No ifs, ands, buts about it. Very simple message. Forty days, and you are goners. Chapter 3, verse 9. The king says, Who knows? God may relent. God may change. God may abandon his course of action and turn from his fierce anger so that maybe we won't perish. Maybe God will relent. He said 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And as we know from the next chapter, that's what Jonah was hoping for but not this pagan king. He says, maybe, maybe if we repent, God will relent. So he calls for this citywide repentance. And then in verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he didn't do it. God said, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And then God said, that's like you saying, no ice cream. Period. You've probably even used the word period. Yeah, and then after the kids wear you down, okay, ice cream, but only a little one. And it's the last one, don't ask me again. Well, this one wasn't because you wore God down. This one was because they repented. They got rid of the reason that God said 40 days and you're going to be destroyed. So when they got rid of the reason for the destruction of Nineveh, God no longer had any reason to destroy Nineveh. And so, guess what? God didn't destroy Nineveh. So that's God relented. Uh, in general and from the context. Now, let's put this in the broader context. Turn to Jeremiah, chapter 18, verses 7 to 10. Because really, what God did here shouldn't shock us. Because all God did here was act in keeping with his character. Jeremiah 18, 7 to 10. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, If at any time 
I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. If that's what I tell you I'm going to do. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight and does not listen to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do with it. I will change my course of action. If I say you are bad and I'm going to blast you, and you repent of your bad, I'm not going to blast you anymore. I don't have any reason to. If I say you are good and I'm going to bless you, and you quit being good, I'm not going to bless you because I don't have any reason to anymore. What's this showing us? This is showing us that God is not a deistic watchmaker, way off beyond the universe, unconcerned about what's going on. God is actively involved in our lives. Yes, he sovereignly determined beforehand everything that would take place, and yes, he is actively involved responding to what you do. What you do makes a difference, is what this text is teaching us. Uh, back to our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause of all things, all things come to pass immutably. That means they can't be changed. And infallibly, no mistakes. Yet by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the sec nature of secondary causes, either freely, necessary, or contingently. And you'll, do I have words underlined there? No, but I have them in italics. Are they, if you go back to Providence chapter 5 on your introductory page, notice that in italics, oh, I didn't, it didn't carry over. But see the word immutably? Put a circle around that word. That means they're going to come to pass just like God, God determined. And put a circle around contingently. That means that they only come to pass when you pray. When you share your faith. So which is it? Is God sovereign or are you responsible? Yes. One plus one plus one equals one. That's Bible math. God is completely sovereign, and you are completely responsible. That's Bible theology. And it's easy for us as Christians, and you can just look at the history of Christian denominations and churches. It's easy for us to identify with one side or the other. So you have churches that emphasize that God's in control of everything, and that's where they identify. You have other churches that emphasize what you do makes a difference, and that's what they, where they identify. I simply say, what God has joined together, let man not separate. My, my mother-in-law 
grew up on this side of the equation. Theologically, we can just label this in very broad strokes, Arminianism. And um, with the raising of her children, she will tell you she was being crushed under the load because everything depended on her. Everything she said, if I do it wrong, my kids will go to hell. If I over, if I under, it all, I mean, it was a weight. Then my wife and I, who also grew up in this tradition, went to a college that was over on this side. And we started to learn about the sovereignty of God and God being in control of everything. And so we took this home. And when Mamie heard this, her first reaction was not, well, that's not right. Her first reaction was, you mean the weight of the world is not on my shoulders? Now, trust me, Mamie did not at that point become an irresponsible mother. That would be impossible to do. It wasn't in her nature. She still did absolutely everything for the good of her kids, for the good of her grandkids. She's 91. She's our only parent left. Uh, Still sharp, uh, still actively involved in the lives of her family, still doing her best, still praying for everybody, but she knows that there's somebody alongside of her who has ordained everything from before the foundation of the world. And so she can do her best with a quiet confidence that there's somebody bigger than she is who's in control of all things. Well, let's wrap this up. What time are we supposed to quit? 11.30? Okay, we're, we're good. Let's wrap this up. I love an Italian saying. Any Italians out there? Any Italians that speak Italian? I don't either. By the way, most people think, uh, somebody asked me the other day uh, what part of Italy I was from. Um, Because my name looks and sounds, Futato kind of looks and sounds uh, uh, Italian. Uh, I say Futato. Most people say Futato. Like Futon, instead of like Future. And it's probably because we have lived so long, either in Southern California, where there's a lot of Spanish, uh, or Central Florida, where there's a lot of Spanish. Uh, in Southern California, it's a lot of Mexican Spanish. In Central Florida, it's a lot of Puerto Rican Spanish. And, and there's no few. Like on our elevator at work, it says um, no smoking. It also says no fumar. It doesn't say no fumar, no fumar. So people don't say few, they say foo. That's okay. In Hungarian, it's futato, nothing like any of the English. And uh, I, my wife actually in college met my brother who's older, and then she met me. She didn't know we were brothers because she met Tim Futato, and then she met Mark Fatata. Because <laughs> coming from western Pennsylvania, we lived right near Ohio. All long O's get shortened up. Uh, all, most vowels get shortened up. Uh, I walked a whole mile to get here. And my wife will say, mile. Did you see that smile? Smile. Yeah, we, everything gets shortened up in western Pennsylvania. I'll say, that was an illegal hit. And the kids will say, dad, illegal. 
Um, I'm a Steeler fan. Uh, I grew up near a steel mill. They did not make stills. They made steel. My son is a firefighter. So that, that's uh, western Pennsylvania. How did I get there? Oh, Italian. I know. Yeah, people think the name is Italian. Or they think it's Japanese if they haven't seen me. Once they see me, they know this guy's not Japanese. Uh, it, it's actually Hungarian. But um, my grandparents on my dad's side uh, were immigrants from um, Hungary in about 1910. My mother's parents were immigrants from Poland uh, about 1910. I can't be anti-immigration, right? I'm only second American born. Uh, my family, they, they all came with nothing. I mean, they came with the required $500. But, okay, I will get, since this is not a worship service, I will get a little political here. They did come legally. There were criteria. Go to, it, it's interesting. Go to Ellis Island and watch the video on what people had to do in order to immigrate. And the fact that if they had to be vetted on that side, and then they were re-vetted on this side. You had to be healthy. You had to have like $500, which was a lot of money. Uh, and uh, you had to meet other requirements. And when you got to this side, if you were sick, you know what happened? You went back at the shipper's expense. So the shippers had to make sure that they were meeting so immigration is a good thing for our country. Uh, it's, it's like, you know, if you, if you only marry within a real limited population of people, yeah, it's not good for you biologically or socially or any other ways. You need that breadth. And immigration is a good thing. God has created races. God has created ethnicities, and they all have a wonderful contribution to make when they mix and mingle and work together toward a common good. That's always been the American way. Um, immigration has always been viewed in a positive light. Uh, but some of my friends on Facebook keep forgetting about the word legal. It, it gets just dropped out of the conversation, and I remember when President Trump became president, I had friends who said, "Not remember the not my president? Not my president. I'm going to Canada. I said, yeah, good luck with that. Do you know what it takes to immigrate to Canada? You might get in in 10 years because Canada has very strict immigration laws. At any rate, okay, enough about that. All I'm saying is Futado's Hungarian, and I, and I do have uh, one regret in that regard. Well, first of all, growing up, the worst sin you could commit in my household, tell an ethnic joke, because my dad was a hunky, and my mother was a Polak. They grew up with that kind of Stigma, because they were the kids of immigrants. And uh, that's not right. 
And so with all that's going, this is just a free commercial. With all that's going on in our country with regard to immigration, never lose sight of the fact that these are people that we're talking about who are created in the image of God. And they are worthy of respect. We might not want everybody to come into our country. Maybe we can't afford that. It would be nice if we could, yes. Could you personally afford to take 20 families into your household, pay for their food and their clothing, pay for their medical insurance, pay for their education? Probably not. And it's unrealistic to think that we can. My wife and I watched The Voice, and there was a, 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 a man, some of the musical ability. I forget the name of it, but there's an island off of the... Um, the west coast of Africa. And this girl was raised in Boston, but this is where her family came from. Her parents came uh, from this island on the west coast of Africa. And um, uh, she basically just said this, I love where I came from, a lot of beauty there, a lot of rich culture that my parents have uh, passed on to me but there's no opportunity there like there is in the United States. We take it for granted if we've been here very long. This is a land of wonderful opportunity. Why do you think everybody wants to come here? So be grateful for the wonderful place where you live. Remember, other people who want to come here they want the same thing for their children and for their grandchildren that you want for yours. They want what my grandparents wanted. None of my grandparents' kids ever went to college. It wasn't until the next generation that some of the kids could start going to college. But you build one generation at a time. And uh, before long, you're a wonderful part of a wonderful uh, community. So let's just keep all of that in sight. But that all started from my talking about Italian. Grew up, my two best friends were Italian. They moved here when they were four years old. Father spoke some English because he worked in the mill. Mother spoke basically no English because she never left the Italian community. Traditore, traditore. Sounds like two, the same word, but it's not. Traditore, traditore. The translator is a traitor. Whenever you translate, often a little bit is added or a little bit is taken away. Let's look at that question with regard to God's responsiveness to human action. It's clearer in the ESV than it is in the NIV, but it's even clearer in the Hebrew text. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and did not do it. Now, you can see the connection there, right, between their repentance and God's relenting. Let me just give you the Hebrew at one particular point. When God saw what they did, and how they turned from their raw. Everybody say raw. raw. 
Raw. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their raw, God relented of his raw. It's the exact same word in Hebrew. And the, why did the Hebrew mother tell the author to repeat those words? Because she wanted, by the repetition of the word, to make the point crystal clear that God's relenting of his raw was in response to the Ninevites repenting of their raw. Now the problem is, when we get to chapter 4, Jonah is going to be full of raw. He's going to be full of raw. The Ninevites, like the sailors, are going to be like God. God get God has no raw. The Ninevites have no raw. The sailors throw, throw, like God throws, throws. Jonah, they're praying and working. He's sleeping. God has no raw. The Ninevites have no raw. Jonah's just full of raw. The Ninevites are like God. Jonah says it. No evidence uh, for it. So God's involvement in history and in, ge- in general and in our lives in particular is not God being fickle, just willy-nilly changing his mind. It is not God changing his eternal and immutable decrees. It is simply God being true to his unchanging character And his unchanging character includes the fact that when people change, he responds. In Jonah 4.2, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in love, and relenting of raw. Changing your course of action with regard to raw. Threatening raw, but then not bringing it when people come to their senses and they repent and put their faith in you. Now this can make you a little bit nervous that God abandoned his course of action. Not me. I say praise God that God relents. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wage of sin is death. In the day you eat, you will die, God said to Adam. Praise God, he abandoned that course of action. And he made a way that any who come to him by grace, through faith, in Christ, will not die, but they will live. And not just live, they will live abundantly. The life that God originally intended for them to live. As Psalm 72 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen.
I'm going to have to get with Bill Polk, not only make sure your check is adjusted for the uh, encouragement to the congregation to give me a sabbatical, but also the, uh, the, uh, the unsolicited advertisement for the children's catechism. Right, Kinsey? She's back there. And I, I am disappointed at all the congregation that did not, when he says, why did God make you in all things? Show me. For his glory. Very unpresbyterian to do that, right? That's it. You know, charismatic means to be what? Filled with the Spirit? That, that, well, I'd say that would describe us. We do have a, a minute or so before we agreed that we would be dismissed this morning. Uh, who, has a, who has a question? Uh, especially when uh, we look at a passage like, God saw and he relented. A question for Mark. Uh, Sharon's got one. Yes. No, there's one, there's one ESV. I'm going to take a guess that if you could nail down the dates, the ESV of the Reformation Study Bible is the original ESV. And the ESV that you, the other ESV is the updated one. Here's one place where you could check, and I can't pull the reference off the top of my head. It's the, um, the birth, um, and reign of Saul. When, uh, <clears throat> in the book of Samuel and Kings, when a king is introduced, we're told like how, how old he was when he became king and how many years he reigned. And there's a problem in the Hebrew text with regard to Saul. If you just take the Hebrew text at face value, it says Saul was one year old when he became king and he reigned two years. So you have to imagine Saul dying in full armor on Mount Gilboa after battling the Philistines, and his son Jonathan was right beside him. So there's a problem there. Now, in the original ESV, they didn't try to solve the problem. They just put blanks, because they think that there are just blanks in the text. Saul was... Blank years old when he became king, and he reigned for blank years. In the new uh, ESV, they've done what most translations have done, and that is they've studied the life of Saul. They put numbers together, and they say Saul was 40 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. So they have filled in the blanks. If you take your two SVs, find that story, you'll probably see, I'm not sure, but you'll probably see that the ESV in the Reformation Study Bible has blanks, and the ESV in the Pew Bible here, or your other one, has it filled in, and there's probably a footnote telling you that the Hebrew text is a little bit hard here. Yeah. Yeah. It's like reading an old NASB and then NASB 95. So is there one group that, that owns that translation? Yes. Okay. Yep. And there's one team that like 
governs editions. Uh, the New Living Translation, the NIV, the, um, the ESV, they all have like a committee, which is one thing that is good, right? They have a committee uh, so that you avoid the idiosyncrasies of one person. Now, that doesn't mean that the translation by one person is automatically bad. Uh, you have, um, we were talking about him last night. He did the message. Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson did his own translation of the Bible called The Message. It's not one that ever will become a translation that people will use as a congregation in the pew. Um, it has the idiosyncrasies of one person. But it, it, it can be helpful to read. There's a new translation of the Old Testament by a man named um, Robert Alter. He's not a Bible guy professionally. He's a retired literature professor from the University of Stanford. But he's also a Jew. He knows Hebrew very well. And he's always been interested in the Bible. He wrote two monumental works for my studies, one called The Art of Biblical Narrative and another called The Art of Biblical Poetry. Um, what are the conventions? How did Hebrew mothers teach their kids to write stories and write poetry? Um, but he, along the way, has been translating the Hebrew Bible, and he's finished it. And it's in three beautiful, beautifully bound volumes with introductions to all the books. It's like a study Bible, notes at the bottom of the page. Um, yeah, but he, and I use it all, it's open, three volumes. It's open on my desk all the time. I always consult it. But it's, it's again, it's not going to be something in the pew because it 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 has a, there are different registers of language. Like maybe you've heard of high German, low German, even if you don't know what it is. There are different registers. For example, if I am writing a paper uh, to publish an article, I would say something like, um, at which moment did you come to that realization? If I'm preaching, I'm going to say, when did you realize that? Uh, for, for example, um, in high register English, you never end a clause with a preposition. Um, I would say something like, um, who were you speaking with? Well, that violates two rules. Oh, no. Who Put it this way. Who did you see? Well, that should be whom, right? But nobody says whom anymore. You write who and whom, but you. I, I used to say, with whom, when I was preaching, with whom was Saul speaking? Well, that just sounds weird. I say, who was Saul talking to? Two at the end and who at the front? Not good English. That is not high register English. But that's the way we speak. When I first started to, um, uh, to write when I was in grad school, working on my dissertation, I had come out of being a pastor. And I was now writing for the acad academy, academic articles. And this is what my dissertation advisor said to me. He said, Mark, you're not preaching. 
you're writing for the academy, you have to use high register English. But I got used to that, and but now I've gotten rid of high register English in my preaching and teaching because that's not what you're used to hearing when people talk. And so there's a difference between spoken English and what you would write. So I tell my students, forget the difference between who and whom. It's gone. Just use who. By the way, if you use who in the wrong way, nobody will know. But if you use whom the wrong way, people are going to think, what's this turkey trying to do? Sound like he's educated or something? But I say, if you're filling out a job application, take the time to use who and whom correctly, because the person reading your application is going to be looking for it. So there's a, there, there are those differences. All that to say is, Alter's translation is like super high register. How do I know this? I couldn't read the first two verses of Genesis without having to get out a dictionary. <laughs> he, I think I have a good vocabulary. I mean, I, I do daily uh, do, a word of the day on my phone every day to enrich my vocabulary. So I know the difference between delicious and luscious now. But I, I had to open the dictionary in Genesis 1, 1 to 2. Yeah. So it's not, but it's a, it's, it's a wonderful translation. It just is very high register in English. Well, did that come from the father who told, taught you about hard work, that you hard work? Uh, part of it did, but that more came from my mother. Um, my father, put it this way, my father, my father was a brilliant man. Only went to high school, so he's not a highly educated man, but he was a brilliant man. Um, but he, he did not have the gift of speaking. He was very hard to understand. Not, not, he, not because of a Hungarian accent or anything like that. It was just hard for him to put into words the thoughts that were in his head. So my speaking and my interest in language didn't come much from my father. It really came from my mother. My mother was the one who would crack your knuckles if you didn't speak properly. Yes, she wouldn't let any of that uh, get by. And where she got that from, I'm not too sure. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe she got it from her mom. I don't know. Maybe she got it growing up in the Catholic school. Maybe some nun, you know, beat good English into her. Literally. Yeah, that wasn't uncommon. Uh, I remember when we had this uh, classmate, Woody, Mike Foyle. We called him Woody. We were at, 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 uh, at a dinner one night at a married couple's house that was in college, and we were all friends. And you've probably had these moments. We were on the floor begging, begging Woody to stop because he was telling us stories about what it was like growing up in the Catholic school with nuns. And you know you know when you're laughing so hard that your stomach hurts and you can't breathe? We were just begging him, stop, and he wouldn't. He just kept going one story after another about sister so-and-so. Yeah. So, But that's how my mother was raised. Uh, she was raised in the Catholic church, and uh, yeah, there's some good to that, yeah. One quick question, and if you're going to address this tomorrow, you can say, 
show up tomorrow. But I appreciate what you had to say about one thing you didn't do in your household was tell ethnic jokes and just that that strong exhortation to to uh, get rid of all the hatred hatred in general, but hatred based on ethnicity for certain. Is that driving Jonah's attitude with regard to the, the Ninevites? I think it is. Um, and the degree to which I'll develop that, I'm not sure. Um, as you can tell by the note, my notes are basically your notes, so <clears throat> I'm not always sure what I'm going to say. <laughs> but I do have an outline to follow that keeps me like on track. Uh, but yeah, it's very clear that Jonah has a, an us-them mentality. And we are the good guys. And they are the bad guys. And it's very easy for us to have that same thing. We are the good guys, and they are the bad guys, whoever they are. And if they're not like us, that could mean they don't look like us. Um, but more than that, in our circles, uh, it can mean they don't think like us. Uh, and so they're not one of us. It's just a natural thing. Um, racism, for example. Because we live in the United States, we maybe can develop the idea that racism is like an American phenomenon. That's very narrow-minded. I remember talking to a Japanese student of mine, and he said, if I bring a girl home, the first question, not the second question, the first question my parents have is, is she pure Japanese? If I say no, the next question is, does she have any Korean blood? If I say yes, she's not welcome. And uh, in, he said, there's a very, you want to marry somebody who's pure Japanese, but if you can't, Asian, but no Korean. White people, now that's kind of okay. Black people, they're not on our list. They have a very clear pecking order of how races are allowed in their culture to mix and how they're not allowed to mix. Uh, even in terms of ethnicities, uh, it's not so much anymore, but uh, Hungarians, you lived in Cleveland or you lived in Pittsburgh. Uh, Dutch, you lived in Michigan. And these ethnic communities kind of stayed together. I remember talking to a Dutchman once, and he said to me, and I kid you not, he said, my daughter married outside the faith. That's what I said. He said, yeah, she married a Baptist. <laughs> I thought, yeah, she married a Buddhist. <laughs> you know? No, she married a Baptist outside the faith. What he really meant was she married somebody who wasn't Dutch uh, and part of the Dutch Reformed uh, world. Because as they would say, uh, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. <laughs> and as we would respond, if you're not Hungarian, you're barbarian. 
so yeah, there there is, the, and if we're honest, we're all prone to this, right? We're all prone to just, there is an expression, birds of a feather flock together, right? And they do that for a reason. You just watch birds and they stay together. Um, but we're not birds. We're all human beings created in God's image. That's what we have to see is the most fundamental truth about us. You see, we can look at external things like ethnicity and race and shape of eyes and skin tone and... Uh, all of that leads to dividing. You're not like me. Or we can look underneath at the most important thing there is about human identity. Created in the image of God. And therefore, worthy of respect. Valuable. To be treated properly. And not to be treated as the butt of an ethnic joke in any way, because underneath all these differences is image of God. I'm convinced that if we only had the doctrine of the image of God burned deeply into the foundation of our theology as Christians, we would look a lot different. Like the guy that is uh, sitting by the road, disheveled, dirty, sign, will, uh, will work for food. What do you see? Maybe you see somebody who, yeah, that guy made a lot of bad mistakes in his life and he's reaping what he sowed. Do you see first and foremost, there's an image bearer right there. Somebody who's worth my respect. That has to underlie all of these differences. And of course, it's hard for us to expect non-Christians to get a hold of that. It's really hard for us to expect non-Christians to get a hold of that when we as Christians don't get a hold of that. When we live so much in the external uh, world. Um, but remember, God is the one who looks on the heart. And when he looks at the heart of any human being from anywhere, anytime, any place, he sees one of his image bearers. To him, that's a person of inestimable value. And if that's the way God values them, that's the way we should value them as well. Back to your point, Jonah didn't do that. Jonah saw us as the good ones and the Ninevites as the bad ones, and so they don't deserve this grace. I knew that you would... That's what he said. I knew that if I said 40 days and Nineveh would be destroyed, you know what those suckers would do? They'd repent. And I knew if they repented, you wouldn't destroy them, and that's exactly why I didn't want to come. Because they deserve the judgment of God, not his grace. Yeah. Only God could love that group. Only God could love them, right? Well, I hope his wife did. <laughs> but I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, that's pitiful. Yeah, aren't we? 